Amen. What a blessing. Wow. Praise the Lord and thank you all for coming here and being a part of this Easter celebration. I want to welcome everybody here, most especially people who might be here for the first time or maybe you're just not a frequent churchgoer and this is new to you and First Baptist is new to you. Uh, if you don't know who I am, I'm one of the pastors here. My name is Jeff and it's my privilege to be able to share the Word of God with you here today, but I just want you to know I'm really glad that you chose to take some time and to be with us. Uh, and happy Easter to everybody. Uh, it is Easter, obviously, so this is the time that we're going to be talking about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Of course, you knew that when you came here. Uh, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, without question, is it's the greatest event in history. Amen? And it's not just the greatest event in history because it's so unbelievable, it's so grand, and all of that sort of thing, but, but I would say it's also the greatest event in history because it answers that age-old question. Is there life after death? Is there life after death? And the answer, because of this, is a resounding yes. Yes, there is. Well, for Bible believers anyway. I mean, think about it with me for just a second. Go all the way back to the explorers and a guy by the name of Ponce de Leon and his search for that thing called the fountain of life. And fast forward all through human history and seemingly endless examples to maybe one of our most Modern examples is something that the technological advancements are talking about. It's a thing called the singularity, where scientists and computer guys are talking about how they can download your brain onto a computer chip and then install it into a robot. That's actually something people are working on, if you didn't know that. And you know what all that stuff is? Those are just attempts of man to make his own way to somehow beat death. That's what they're trying to do. And to live forever, but without God. That's what all of those attempts are. But can I tell you this morning that beating death, it's already been done. I mean, why don't we just accept it? Well, we'll get to that later. You know, it's no surprise that there are people out there that don't believe in Jesus Christ or they don't believe in the resurrection, they don't believe in life after death. They're what the Bible would call scoffers, or you might call them skeptics. In 2 Peter chapter 3, the last letter that the Apostle Peter wrote, verses 3 and 4, it says, Knowing this first, that there shall come in the last days scoffers, walking after their own lusts and saying, Where is the promise of His coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. And so this prophecy comes forth of the scriptures where Peter says, there's going to be people in the last days, and friends, we're in the last days. And there's going to be scoffers, and they're going to say, where's the promise of this second coming of Jesus Christ? Because the bodily return of Jesus Christ to this earth, friends, proves visibly once and for all, that there is indeed a literal resurrection from the dead. You know, the modern version of what Peter wrote in 2 Peter 3 concerning the idea of life after death that would come from the mouth of skeptics might sound something like this. Until someone dies and comes back from the dead to tell me about it, I'm not going to believe it. Well, there's good news. That actually has happened. And you get to hear from them today. So my message to 
Anybody who's a skeptic that may be listening to this today is very simple. I want you to know that it's reasonable to think that there is indeed a resurrection after this life. A resurrection into eternal life. And since God has shown to us his guarantee of life after death, why would anyone reject that? And then hope to find some other way when he already provided the way. No, there is one way. It is the way, and it's already been determined. And in fact, there are many various witnesses of that way. What I want to read for you today, we're going to start off in John chapter 5, verses 31 to 39. The backstory of this is Jesus in his earthly ministry early on is doing many miracles and he's healing many people. And, and if you were to look back at verse 18 of chapter 5, he's proving to the people beyond a shadow of a doubt that he's making himself equal with God himself. But there were groups of people who wouldn't believe it. They were skeptics. And so Jesus begins to teach some things starting in verse 31 concerning the testimony of Jesus Christ himself that he came from God, his Father, and he was indeed God in human flesh. Just follow along. I'm going to read starting in verse 31, go down to verse 39. Jesus says this, If I bear witness of myself, my witness is not true. There's another that beareth witness, beareth, excuse me, witness of me, and I know that witness which he witnesseth of me is true. Ye sent unto John, and he bear witness unto the truth, but I receive not testimony from man. But these things I say that ye might be saved. He was a burning and a shining light, and ye were willing for a season to rejoice in his light. But I have greater witness than that of John, for the works which the Father hath given me to finish, the same works that I do bear witness of me that the Father hath sent me. And the Father himself with, which hath sent me hath borne witness of me, Ye have neither heard his voice at any time, nor seen his shape, and ye have not his word abiding in you, for whom he hath sent. Him ye believe not. And then verse 39, search the scriptures, for in them ye think ye have eternal life, and they are they which testify of me. And so what we see in this passage are five levels of witness. Five levels of witness that Jesus lays out in ascending order to confirm whether something or not can be believed, whether something or not is truly truth. And the first and most basic witness is number one in your notes, if you're keeping track, the witness of yourself. Verse 31, if I bear witness of myself, my witness is not true. The idea is that Most people are skeptical of someone speaking of themselves. Well, I mean, there's any number of reasons why somebody might do that. So I don't know if I believe you talking about you. Okay. So let's wrap it up a stage. Let's go to the number two. Number two is the witness of others. This is verse 32. He goes on and says, There's another that beareth witness of me. And I know that the witness which he witnesseth of me is true. And so historically, he's speaking of John the Baptist. We read that in verses 33, 34, and 35. But practically speaking for us today, when someone else confirms your story, well, that's better than just you talking about you, right? But even at that, I know how your minds work. I know how mine works. Your friend might lie for you. He might be in on it with you right? So there's another level. Number three, the witness of your life. 
The witness of your life, verse 36, but I have greater witness than that of John. See how they're increasing? For the works which the Father hath given me to finish, the same works that I, that I do, bear witness of me that the Father hath sent me. So in Jesus' day, and in the direct context of John chapter 5, he's specifically talking about the miracles. He's talking about the supernatural acts that, that were accompanying his words and his ministry. But in general, we all understand that however it is that you conduct your life, it speaks volumes about the validity of your verbal message, doesn't it? You know how they say, actions speak louder than words. You know how people say sometimes, don't, don't tell me what you want me to know, show me. Show me with your actions. It's because the testimony of your works is even greater than that of your words. Everybody knows that. Well, he keeps ramping it up to number four. It's the witness of God himself. This is verse 37. And the Father himself, which hath sent me, hath borne witness of me. You have neither heard his voice at any time nor seen his shape. This testimony of God the Father directly testifying of Jesus Christ and who he truly is is revealed all throughout Scripture. And, and that's not the lesson for this morning, but just simply for a point of comparison, let me just read for you 1 John chapter 5, verses 7 through 9. It says, For there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one. And there are three that bear witness in earth, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree in one. If we receive the witness of men, the witness of God is greater, for this is the witness of God which he hath testified of his Son. And even God himself from heaven testified of the fact that Jesus is who he said he is. Now, you'd be looking at this and you might be thinking, well, that has to be the greatest possible testimony that anybody could ever get if God himself gives you his testimony, right? Well, not according to John chapter 5, because there is one testimony that God even himself says is, yea, even higher than the audible voice of God the Father, and that's the witness of Scripture. The witness of Scripture, verse 39, search the Scriptures, he says. For in them ye think you have eternal life. Notice, and they are they which testify of me. You see, even God's audible voice can't compare with the validity of the written scriptures. I'm not trying to insinuate that God's audible voice would ever be in error. Don't go out of here saying that I said that. But there's a reason why the written scriptures are even better than that. The Apostle Peter, once again in 2 Peter, but this time back in the first chapter, let me read for you verses 17 to 21 as he makes the direct comparison. He says, For he received, he's speaking of Jesus Christ, he received from God the Father honor and glory when there came such a voice to him from the excellent glory. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And this voice which came from heaven, we, Peter speaks, for myself and the apostles, he's saying, we, the apostles, heard... When we were with him in the Holy Mount, that's Matthew chapter 17, Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. He goes on then in verse 19 and he says, we have also, notice, a more sure word of prophecy, whereunto you do well that you take heed, as unto a light that shineth in a dark place, until the day dawn and the day star arise 
in your hearts, knowing this first, that no prophecy of the Scripture, defining for you what he's talking about when he says we have a more sure word of prophecy, we have a more sure word of prophecy of Scripture. Why? Because knowing this first, no prophecy of the Scripture is of any private interpretation, for the prophecy came not in old time by the will of men, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. So clearly the scriptures are the highest form of testimony or of confirmation. Why? Because they're objective. You could have a friend who could say, I had a legitimate experience last night. God appeared to me in a vision and God said to me, go and do this thing. And and you might be amazed and you might say, wow, that sounds amazing. But the truth of the matter is, at the end of the day, his story of his personal experience, it's subjective. It's subjective to his memory. It's subjective to what he thought he experienced. And if he tells you again in a day or a month or a year later, you know how the telephone game goes. It could change. But the scriptures are written down. They never change. You can open the book to the same place year after year after year. They say the same thing. They're objective. You can always know what they say. And they are the very words of God. So what we're going to do in the time that we have together today is to look into the Scriptures to find our answers today for proof of a legitimate resurrection. Can I take just a second and ask God to speak to all of our hearts? Heavenly Father, I know that you're in our midst. We have lifted up your name in praise and you inhabit our praises and you're speaking through your word. And I just pray, Lord, for every soul that's hearing this voice that, that you would use this message. And you would touch lives. And if people are here who don't know that they have eternal life, want to have it, that they would receive you as their Lord and Savior today. And if others who would say that they know that they've had it, but they've let their life slip away into sin, that you would touch their hearts today and show them that they can get back on track. However you would choose to use your word, Lord, let it not return void. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Very quickly, number one in your outline, we're going to look at the witness of Jesus. So Jesus prophesied of his own resurrection before he ever died, during his earthly ministry. If you look with me back in John chapter 2, it should come up on the screen. This is Jesus telling the story as he's going through that time at the wedding of Cana in Galilee. He's coming up to that and it says, Jesus answered the Jews and said unto him, What signs showest thou unto us, seeing that thou doest these things? And Jesus answered and said unto them, Destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it up. Then said the Jews, Forty and six years was this temple in building, and wilt thou rear it up in three days? But they didn't understand. He spake of the temple of his body. When therefore he was risen from the dead, some three years later, his disciples that were there at the time of that wedding in Cana of Galilee, they remembered. He said, oh yeah, he he said that three years ago. Destroy this temple. He's speaking of his body. Have When I die, you all are going to kill me. But in three days, I'll raise it up again. Then they remembered, oh yeah, he talked about that before he was ever gone. Jesus called it ahead of time. And then after he rose from the dead, well, he did it again. Obviously, he confirmed it. Let's look together in Matthew chapter 28. I'm going to read 10 verses. We're really going to hone in on the last couple, but just follow along. Matthew 28. This is the actual story of the resurrection now. 
In the end of the Sabbath, as it began to dawn toward the first day of the week, came Mary Magdalene and the other Mary to see the sepulcher. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for the angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat upon it. His countenance was like lightning, his raiment white as snow. And for fear of him, the keepers did shake and became as dead men. And the angel answered and said, excuse me, unto the woman, fear not ye, for I know that ye seek Jesus, which was crucified. He's not here, for he's ridden, risen, as he said. Come, see the place where the Lord lay. And go quickly and tell his disciples that he's risen from the dead. And behold, he goeth before you into Galilee, and there ye shall see him. Lo, I have told you. And they departed quickly from the sepulcher with fear and great joy and did run to bring his disciples' word. Please notice the next two verses. And as they went to tell his disciples, behold, Jesus met them, saying, All hail. And they came and held him by the feet and worshipped him. Then said Jesus unto them, Be not afraid. Go tell my brethren that they go into Galilee, and there shall they see me. And so Jesus basically is saying to them very clearly, hey, listen, you came to the sepulcher. You saw that I'm not there anymore. The angel told you what to do. You're on way. He's just like, hey, it's me. I'm the one. It's me. The same story basically appears in Luke chapter 24, Luke's version of this story starting in verse 36. And it says, and as they thus spake, Jesus himself stood in the midst of them and said unto them, peace be unto you. This is now appearing, he's appearing in his resurrected form to the disciples. But they were terrified and affrighted and supposed they had seen a spirit. And he said unto them, why are you troubled? And why do thoughts arise in your hearts? Behold, my hands and my feet, it is I myself. Handle me and see, for a spirit hath not flesh and bones as you see me have. And when he had thus spoken... He showed them his hands and his feet. Jesus shows up after the resurrection and he's like, hey, it's me. Just like I said, I'm the one. Here I am. Don't be troubled. Well, the skeptics might say, well, that doesn't count. We just looked at the fact Jesus himself said if he bears witness of himself, it carries no weight. Anybody can do that. Okay, I get it. But I wanted you to see that he did say that. The Bible does say in 2 Corinthians chapter 13 and verse number 1, this is the third time I'm coming to you, Paul writes under the Corinthians. Notice, in the mouth of two or three witnesses shall every word be established. So you want another witness? Let's move on and look at another witness. That's number two. It's the witness of Paul. It's the witness of Paul. Now we're going to talk not about, Paul's not going to talk about Jesus' resurrection, not in this Bible study we're going to do. Paul's going to talk about his own resurrection. Did you know that Paul also came back from the dead? 2 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 23, Paul's given his testimony of the things he went through. And he says, Are they ministers of Christ? I speak as a fool. I am more, in labors more abundant, in stripes above measure, in prisons more frequent. Notice this last phrase. In deaths, oft. That's older English for often. In deaths, often. Do you know that Paul died more than once? Really? Well, when did that really happen? Y'all, y'all cool if we do a little Bible study? We'll dive into some stuff here together. We'll go kind of quick, but I mean, we've got to get something today. So I think it's clear. It's Acts chapter 14, verses 19 and 20. This is the end of Paul's first missionary journey. He had been sent out from Antioch with Barnabas. They led a bunch of people to the Lord. They were established in churches, and they're on their way back to Antioch, their first missionary journey. 
And in verse 19, there came thither certain Jews from Antioch and Iconium who persuaded the people. They were against what Paul was doing. They were mad that people were getting saved. Imagine that. Persuaded the people and having stoned Paul, drew him out of the city supposing he had been dead. Howbeit as the disciples stood round about him, he rose up and came into the city. And the next day he departed with Barnabas to Derbe. You say, well, how do you know that he actually died? I mean, it says they supposed he was dead. They probably just saw him knocked out and walked away. He wasn't really dead. He came to himself. He got back up. Okay, you can think that if you want to. We're not done proving it yet. But remember that we started with 2 Corinthians chapter 11 where Paul said under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, in deaths oft. His death experience is actually described Paul speaks of himself in the third person in the next chapter in 2 Corinthians chapter number 12. Notice with me 2 Corinthians 12, 1. Paul says this, it is not expedient for me. So he's talking about himself. Make it very clear to yourselves. It's not expedient for me, doubtless, to glory. I will come to visions and revelations of the Lord. Paul is going to be explaining his experiences. But he ends up describing them in a third-person scenario, vocabulary. Why? Because as you'll see, it was a little weird for him. He was in heaven. He wasn't exactly sure what was going on. Verse number two, I knew a man in Christ above 14 years ago. He's talking about himself. Whether in the body, I cannot tell, or whether out of the body, I cannot tell. God knoweth. Such an one caught up to the third heaven. And I knew such a man, whether in the body or out of the body, I cannot tell. God knoweth how that he was caught up into paradise and heard unspeakable words, which it's not lawful for a man to utter. So Paul, speaking of himself, is referring to an event where he wasn't exactly sure whether he was in his body or out of his body because it was a spiritual experience, and and yet he says he was caught up to the third heaven. He was caught up to a place called paradise. Well, that's the dwelling place of God. There's three heavens in the Bible, and we live in the first heaven, the earth and its atmosphere, and the outer space and the planets would be the second heaven, and the third heaven would be beyond that crystal sea where God hangs out, and it's referred to as paradise, and the only way you can possibly be a partaker of such a thing is to be absent from the body, like Paul refers to in 2 Corinthians 5, starting in verse 6, therefore we are always confident knowing that whilst we are at home in the body, We're absent from the Lord. And we look down in verse 8. We are confident, I say, and willing rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. So when Paul was stoned to death back in Acts chapter 14 and went to the third heaven into the very presence of God, he was still alive just without his body. Because he went on and he said in 2 Corinthians 12, whether in the body or out of the body... I'm not exactly sure what was going on. I can't can't really tell. And the reason for that is, is because biblically the definition of death is not the end of life. The definition of death is separation. And literally, your physical death is then therefore just the separation of your body from your soul. I'm not making this up. This is what the Bible says. Speaking of Rachel in the Old Testament, the wife of Jacob, Genesis 35, 18. And it came to pass, notice, as her soul was departing, parentheses, for she died, for the people in the slow class. 
that she called his name Benoni, but his father called him Benjamin. When you die, your soul departs from your body. A little later on in that same chapter, it refers to the death of Isaac in verse number 29 of Genesis 35, and it it says it this way, Isaac gave up the ghost. That's because his soul departed and left his body as a bodiless spirit, sometimes referred to as a ghost. He was gathered unto his people. In 1 Kings chapter 17 and verse 21, we have the story of the prophet Elijah bringing back from the dead the son of a widow woman. And he did it in this manner. It says, he stretched himself upon the child three times and he cried unto the Lord and said, O Lord my God, I pray thee, what? Let this child's soul come into him again. Why? Because he died and his soul had departed. Because death is the separation of body and soul. That's all it means. So after having that experience that Paul had, he could then say in Philippians 1.21, for to me to live is Christ, but to die, <laughs> that's gain. He goes on in that chapter, if you read it, he said, I, if it's just for me, I'd rather go be with the Lord. Why? Because he knew what was on the other side. Why? Because he had been there. His faith had already become sight. He didn't have to just believe it based on the words of a book or the words of others anymore. He saw what waited for him on the other side. And this fact, this experience that Paul went through, it so affected his life that from that point on in his earthly ministry, Paul lived his life with reckless abandon like he had a death wish. He lived with such a fury running forward for the gospel almost as if he wished he dared people to kill him. What's the worst thing you can do to me? Send me back there where I can't wait to go anyway? And that's how he carried out his ministry. This is just not my idea. This is bared out in the scriptures. Past Acts 14 is Acts 20, right? And Paul's testimony starting in verse 22. And now, behold, I go bound in the Spirit unto Jerusalem, not knowing the things that shall befall me there, save that the Holy Ghost witnesseth in every city, saying that bonds and afflictions abide me. Paul's on his way back to Jerusalem, and the Holy Spirit is speaking to Paul over and over again, saying, if you go back there, they're going to lock you up. Paul answers with verse 24. But none of these things move me. Neither count I my life dear unto myself, so that I might finish my course with joy in the ministry which I have received of the Lord Jesus to testify the gospel of the grace of God. Paul said, lock me up? Why stop there? Just kill me. The very next chapter, he's given his testimony again, Acts 21, 11 to 13. And when he was come unto us, he took Paul's girdle and bound his own hands and feet, this is a different prophet speaking unto him, and said, thus saith the Holy Ghost, so shall the Jews at Jerusalem bind the man that owneth this girdle and shall deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. And when we heard these things, both we and they, that, they of that place besought him not to go up to Jerusalem. The people around Paul were saying, man, don't do it. They're going to lock you up. Verse 13, Paul answered, What mean ye to weep and to break mine heart? 
For I am ready not only to be bound, not to be bound only, but also to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. He didn't care. He knew what was on the other side. But yet there are skeptics. They might say something like, that doesn't count either. I mean, that's just the Bible. I mean, I want to talk to somebody today, here, right in front of me, right now, who's died and who's returned. Okay. Well, it's your lucky day. Because I want you to know that I'm that man. I've died and I'm here to tell you that the only way you can make it the other side is to be born again, receive Jesus Christ, your Lord and Savior. Now, there's people in here, I know how you're thinking. You're like, you're lying. You didn't die and raise again from the dead. And I would say, exactly, that's my whole point. Because if a person stood in front of you and said, that was me, I did it, you wouldn't believe them either. You wouldn't believe it. Thank you for confirming what the Scriptures say. See, here's the the idea. It doesn't even matter if I was telling you the truth or not about myself. Because you can't prove it. You can't prove if I was lying. And the truth of the matter is is that you'd reject anybody. I mean, if you're just going to be a rejecter. I mean, if you're just going to be a skeptic. You'd reject anyone that came and said what I just said, even if it was true. That means you're a hypocrite. That means you just make excuses and you just try to deflect the real issue that one day you too will die and give account of your life. God loves you enough to have warned you about it ahead of time and he warned you enough to tell you in Hebrews 9.27 it's appointed unto men once to die but not just to die. After this, the judgment. See, men, we don't like that idea. of the. I mean, we kind of get our minds wrapped around the fact that life has a certain cycle. We can get our minds around that. We might not like it, but that's the way it works. We get it. It's that judgment thing we just don't like. So all you really need is the thing that God has generously already provided you is the very highest form of testimony there is. And that's number three in your outline, the witness of Scripture. The witness of Scripture. Oh, and by the way, I do want you to realize that those previous testimonies of Jesus and of Paul they are also recorded in Scripture. They actually qualify as the witness of Scripture. They weren't just hearsay, verbal statements. But I want you to notice this. And if you'll take your Bibles or if you just want to follow along on the screen, that's fine too. I'm going to look at a story in Luke chapter 16. I'll read several verses but really hone in on a few at the end. But Luke chapter 16, verses 19 to 31. Jesus tells this story. There was a certain rich man which was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. And there was a certain beggar named Lazarus which which laid at his gate full of sores. And desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table, moreover the dogs came and licked his sores. It came to pass that the beggar died and was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. And in hell he lift up his eyes, being in torments, and seeth Abraham afar off, and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus, that he may dip the tip of his finger in water, and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham 
said, Son, remember that thou in thy lifetime receivest thy good things, and likewise Lazarus evil things, but now he's comforted, and thou art tormented. And beside all this, between us and you, there's a great gulf fixed, so that they which would pass from hence to you cannot, neither can they pass to us that would come from thence. Then he, the rich man, said, I pray thee therefore, Father, that thou wouldest send him to my father's house. For I have five brethren, that he may testify unto them, lest they also come into this place of torment. A man who's already died as an unbeliever and is living his life in continuing torments in hell would be the greatest evangelist ever set loose on the face of this earth if he had the chance. Please let him, if he can't come and dip his finger and cool my tongue, let him go to my family so they don't, they don't come here. He expected a person who had died and rose from the grave and stood in front of somebody else and said, I have died and I rose from the grave would be enough to convince his unbelieving family. That's the logic of a man in hell. Notice Abraham's answer in verse 29. Abraham saith unto him, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, Nay, Father Abraham, but if one went unto them from the dead, they will repent. And he said unto him, If they hear not Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rose from the dead. The witness of Scripture is enough. In fact, it's all that you possibly could need. God knows that even if somebody actually rose from the dead today in front of you and told you about it, if you wouldn't believe the Scriptures, you wouldn't believe that guy either. The Scriptures are more sure. You didn't believe me saying it was me because you thought I could have lied. You thought it was subjective. But the Scriptures are objective. It's the written record of absolute truth. That's what John 17, 17 says. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. That's Jesus in John 8, 32. You shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. It's the scriptures, it's the word of God that can make you free. Why is that all we need? Well, because in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, it says, For by grace are ye saved through faith. You have to have faith in what God wrote. And that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. You are saved by grace, God offering you a free gift, but you appropriate it by believing what he said, what is written. Romans 10, 17, faith cometh by hearing, and hearing, well, by the word of God. That's where it comes from. The only, way you can have, the only way you can be saved is to have faith. The only way you can have faith is by the Word of God. You need the Word of God. You don't need somebody to raise from the dead and tell you face to face. And the only way to get in on your resurrection unto life is to put your faith in the record of the Scriptures. And that record of the Scriptures is very simple. It states this. You're a sinner. You've blown it. You've made mistakes. You've done wrong things. You've offended a holy God. Don't feel too bad. You're in good company or bad company, depending on how you want to look at it. We've all done it. 
We're all in the same boat together. Our sin separates us from God. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. Remember what death means. Death is just separation. If you die in your sins, you will be separated, not just your soul from your body, but then your soul will be separated from God forever. And when the Bible talks about death and the separation from God, it's talking about what it refers to as the second death. The first death is your bodily physical death. But there is a spiritual death, and that's the one you don't have to have. That's the wage of sin. That's the payment for sin if you don't get it forgiven. It's the separation from God in hell. That's Revelation chapter 21 and verse number 8. But the fearful and unbelieving and abominable and murderers and whoremongers and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars. Is that, is that your crowd? Are those your pals? Is that who you want to spend eternity with? Well, those guys shall have their part in the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. There's some pretty rough characters in that list, right? Did you notice how that list started out? Just with the fearful and, oh yeah, unbelieving. All you got to do to qualify to get in that list is not believe what God testified through his word. But the good news is God loves you, right? Amen. He made a way for you to be saved from death and from hell, right? Romans 5, 8, God commendeth his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us right? His love has demonstrated us. That's John 3.16. Everybody knows John 3.16, right? God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth on him should not perish but have eternal life. And so he loves you. You're in a bad situation. We're all in a bad situation. We're sinners, and, and what we deserve is hell. What we deserve is to be separated from God forever because of our sin, but man, he loves you. He made a way in fact, the gospel itself is defined for us in 1 Corinthians 15, the first four verses. Notice how it's defined biblically. Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel, which I preached unto you, which also you have received, and wherein ye stand, by which also you're saved, if you keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he rose again the third day, according to the scriptures. The gospel is defined as the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But it's not just the death, the burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's, it's the fact that Jesus died. Why? Jesus died for our sins because we are sinners and we needed him. And when he died for our sins and he was buried and he rose again the third day, that encompasses the gospel, but not just that he died any old way and rose any old way. He did it all according to the Scriptures because the Scripture is the highest witness that anybody could possibly have. So very clearly, if you'll just believe the gospel, that Jesus died not for everybody's sin, he did, but for you as an individual, that he died for your sin. I received the Lord a long time ago, almost 40 years ago. But that day when I did, I recognized for the first time in my life that Jesus died for my sin. Okay, everybody else, but I'm kind of working on me right now. He died for my sin. You got to get that. You believe that he died for your sin, that he was buried and he rose again the third day 
to offer to you, sir, to you, ma'am, your personal forgiveness. This is the same Jesus Christ after his resurrection and glorification in Revelation chapter 1 is described this way in verse 18. I am he that liveth and was dead, and behold, I'm alive forevermore. Amen. And have the keys of death and of hell. You don't have to worry about getting stuck in death or hell because I got the keys. I can get you out. So only a born-again Christian, only somebody who's received this forgiveness, only people who can give the testimony, like the testimonies we heard of those who were baptized today, only such a person can say things like we read earlier in 2 Corinthians 5 and verse number 8, where it says, we are confident, I say, and willing rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. Who but a person with absolute assurance of what comes next could say, not just that I'm confident, I can't wait for that day. I'm willing rather, if I could pick, I'd rather be out of this old wretched body of sin, living in a world full of sin, and to be in the presence of my Savior. 1 Corinthians 15 ends, that great chapter of the gospel and the resurrection, ends with these statements. Verse 54, so when this corruptible, this this physical body, shall have put on incorruption and this mortal shall have put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? Why? Because the sting of death is sin and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Why would anyone resist accepting what Jesus did for them? Why would people continue to labor and toil over finding their own way to that answer, to that one profound question? Is there life after death when the question's already been answered and the way has already been paved? Why reject the way to try and find your own way? Which, by the way, won't work. Don't people realize that Jesus' resurrection is not just a historical fact, but it has implications on our resurrection? Well, I say, of course they understand that. They're just not willing to accept the fact that Jesus died for their sins. They're not willing to accept the fact that they're sinners. I'm not so bad. They're not willing to accept the fact that he's coming back to judge and that he's coming back to judge on a moral basis. And that you all, just like me, we have moral failure. So they expend all their energy trying to find another way to beat death when Jesus already did it. Jesus said, I am the way. I'm not one among many. Ever since the Tower of Babel, man's been trying to make his own way to God. And just like back then, even now, God won't allow it. Back then, he came down himself and he put a stop to it. And soon and very soon, he's coming down again to put a stop to it. So here's the big question and we're done. What are you going to do? What are you going to do before it's too late? You know, it's God's mercy, it's God's grace that he hasn't returned yet. He's waiting for you to get saved. Will you? Will you surrender your pride 
And will you ask him to give you that free gift of eternal life? I want us to pray together. And if that's you, just in your own words, whatever I say isn't magic, but if you mean it, you can cry out to the Lord for salvation. Let's, let's go ahead and do that.